This is titled, Questions and Answers, number 18, The Wisdom of Myth and Dream, a discussion between Joel and his students. Recorded Sunday, May 16, 1999, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So who has a question? Great, the right. question I thought of, of um, when we're talking about myth mythology, what was Mercieliati's book, Perpetual Return? The Myth of Eternal Return. Eternal Return. I was just wondering uh, if you could talk about maybe what, um, in mythology, what leads people to etern return return to God, and how can we, what mythology has to say about how we can do that in our everyday lives, in terms of everyday kind of returning and remembering God? Well, <laughs> <laughs> there's one of the great classic and most universal myths, the myth of eternal return, and it is a theme that occurs at every level of being, so to speak. So it's a, it's a more than just even one Sunday's talk. It's a, it could be a whole series. But we can uh, get some idea of what the import of it is in terms of our uh, own practice. And that is, first of all, if we look at the most universal meaning of this myth, and that is that everything comes from the same origin or source and everything returns to it. And you'll find this in, uh, in Christianity, uh, especially the earlier mystics of Christianity, this whole idea that, that the whole cosmos and all the beings in the cosmos uh, eventually return to God. And this includes beings who go to hell, for instance, uh, John Scotus Erigina has a wonderful image of this. He says that our nature is restless for God, for the divine. Naturally so, just by virtue of the fact we are separated from the divine. So we are always seeking the divine. We don't know it often. We don't know that we're seeking the divine, but we're always seeking happiness. And from a mystic's point of view, that is happiness, ultimately. So wherever our seeking takes us, we are always seeking the divine, but we might be going in the opposite direction. We might be actually, in a certain sense, moving away from the divine. And the more we seek happiness in uh, success or uh, money and things like that, actually the farther we are moving away from uh, God. But this restlessness is always there, and it will always be there until we return to God. So in the Christian mythology, if you're really bad and you really wander farther and farther away from God, you end up in hell. But uh, Scotus Erigina's point was that that restlessness is still there. We're not satisfied in hell. And so we begin the return journey because hell is as far as you can get away from God. So you might think of it as a, a moving on a sphere. And if you think of God at the North Pole, then uh, even if you are uh, moving south, eventually you come to the South Pole, but you keep moving and then you start going north again. Do you see what I mean? So everything ultimately returns to the, the divine. You'll find similar, uh, similar themes in Sufism, in the Quran, 
this over and over again, this phrase occurs that everything is returning unto him, unto Allah. And so Sufis generally don't believe that hell is any ultimate place. And of course, in the Eastern traditions, uh, there's even in the exoteric mythology, the hells aren't permanent places. You keep cycling through cyclic existence until ultimately you return to that original source, the consciousness itself or Buddha nature or whatever. So this is the great overview, let's say, of what's going on. But to now jump down to our own practice, as practitioners, we have to make this connection. Otherwise, they're just interesting, uh, maybe profound stories. But unless we really connect it to our lives, that's all they will be for us. Mm -hmm. But if we then, let's say, turn to um, Lao Tzu, and in the Tao Te Ching, he talks about watching how the myriad creatures arise and return to their root. And it's returning to the root that is enlightenment. Now, when he talks about myriad creatures, as I said last week, he's not just talking about the squirrels and butterflies and so forth. He's talking about all forms, all phenomena. So watching the myriad creatures return to their root is watching all phenomena arise and return to its root. And you can do this very specifically, very precisely in meditation. If you learn to calm your mind, to still your mind, to concentrate, and then if you learn to have your attention be like a mirror, so it's not chasing after thoughts or various phenomena and so forth. It's just reflecting what's going on. You see very clearly how every little phenomena arises and returns to its root. A sound. Where does it come from? It comes from silence. Where does it return to? It returns to silence. A sensation. Just snap your fingers. There was no sensation, emptiness of that particular little sensation. Now your finger probably is tingling a little bit. But that sharp sensation of the snap has returned to its root. A sight, you, all you have to do is close your eyes for a moment. <laughs> the whole world of visual phenomena returned to its root. Darkness, we could call it. Open your eyes. It all manifests again. Same thing with tastes, smells. And the hardest one to see for most people is thoughts, because we're so involved with our thoughts. But each thought, where does it come from? Give it a name, consciousness. It arises in pure consciousness and it returns to pure consciousness. So these terms we've used here, silence for sound, darkness for sight, uh, consciousness for thought, these are all the terms that mystics have always used for that ultimate source, the divine, God, right? So really, this is happening all the time in every moment of our experience. And we watch very carefully, and we watch every kind of phenomenon. Sights, sounds, tastes, smells, 
touch, sensations, and thought. And included in thought here are memories, images, uh, feelings. If we watch them all very carefully, we see that they are all returning to their roots all the time, and there's nothing else. There is no I. There is no you. There is no being waiting to go back. You never left. You are that silence. You are that darkness. You are that consciousness. You are that emptiness. So the myth of eternal return is a myth when it comes to us as individuals. Now I'm using myth in the modern sense of something that's not true. It's a delusion. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. We don't ever return. We don't ever manifest. And we don't ever go back. We are that consciousness. It's simply a question of watching. It's not a question of taking my word for it. It's examining your own experience. You will never find any I, any self, any individual, any entity that has ever manifested anywhere. And so all the suffering and distress and worry uh, and hope and uh, anticipation, the clusters around that supposed entity, individual, and worries about its fate, and is it ever going to get back to the divine, and all this adventure and the story and the drama and the mythology of it all is just that, a myth. It doesn't have any true existence, true beings. Good question. Good answer. <laughs> Hopefully it was helpful. Yes. So why do we get caught up in this? <laughs> so That's a good question. Why do you? That's a question I've never been able to answer. I don't know why I ever got caught up in it. I don't know. You know, I had a friend, and she spent three years in a Tibetan Buddhist retreat doing the traditional practices under the supervision of a lama who would visit her every, I don't know, six months or once a year or something. And one of the practices that she was doing, I believe it was the prostration or was it her mantra practice? But anyway, it's a very complex practice. And she was going about it in a very complex way. And she was having a really rough time with this. And when her lama came to visit after a year or so, I don't know exactly the time, she explained to him what she was doing and how difficult it was. And he said, oh, well, you don't have to do it that way. Do it this way. Much easier. And she said, well, why was I doing it that way all this time? And he said, well, because that's what you thought you were supposed to be doing. So it's her own mind that created the problem, do you see what I mean? And the whole business of I should be doing it this way and this is what I should be doing and all that. I don't know why the mind does that. But it does. At least in my experience it did. There are two thoughts there. There's the thought that I'm supposed to be doing something and then I'm supposed to be doing this. And uh, we just sort of pick it up with being raised a certain way. You're right. And in that story, there are two levels to the story. 
the first level is that the level of the practice. And he's saying, oh, you're somehow you got it into your mind. You're supposed to be doing it this way. And so that's the way you did it, even though it was very difficult. And uh, you could have done it uh, in a much easier way. There's also, at a more profound level, the thought that you have to do anything, that there's someone to do something here. But we have to work our way to that realization, usually. But, yeah, how does it get started? You can use analogies. Um, I once read a, uh, wasn't a story, it was a report of someone traveling in Afghanistan. This was in the 30s or 40s. And he was a Westerner, and he was traveling to these uh, villages in the hills. And they had a truck with a generator and a projector and a screen that would go around to these villages. And they'd set up in the uh, a little movie theater, but it was an outdoor theater, like a drive-in, in these little villages in the plaza. And they'd set up the screen, and they'd crank up the generator, and they'd run the projector. And they would show these, like, Hopalong Cassidy movies, right? These silent American westerns, which are so simple in plot, anybody can follow them. You know, there's the, the good guys in the white hats and the bad guys in the black hats, and there's some uh, heroine who's in peril. And at one point, the villain had cornered the heroine, you know, and he was making all sorts of evil gestures at her, and, the, and she was, you know, waving her hands away or whatever they used to do in, you know, those movies to dramatize the danger. And this one guy leapt up, drew his dagger, and charged the screen and started stabbing the villain. Now, something happened there, you see, he, he flipped over and he mistook what was not real for being reality. Well, it's a very good analogy of what we do under delusion. It's not that things aren't appearing, they're obviously appearing, but what is their true nature? So how, if you can explain what happened in his mind, you can perhaps explain how ignorance comes about. Why is it that we... Uh... I, I, he gets this, this strong feeling, and the strong feeling is circuited without the rational thought. It's, you know, it's almost like when someone gets furious, they just explode. And it exploded. So what I'm thinking is that there is a kind of a conditioned loop that we get into. And it's that loop that uh, keeps us... Oh, once uh, we get into the loop, yes. Yeah. Yes. In the East, uh, in the both Hindu and Buddhist traditions, I believe, at least the original Theravadian Buddhist tradition, they say there's no beginning to ignorance. It doesn't have a beginning. And, uh, but it has an end. And that's partly their idea of time, the myth of eternal return, that there is no beginning to time, it just circles around and around. But there's also another uh, interesting, uh, even more profound uh, hit on that. Time itself is part of the delusion. So when we ask the question, how did it get started, we're asking the question within the realm of time. And we're, then we're asking for an answer within the realm of time. And time itself, though, is a delusion. So in a certain sense, it cannot be answered truly. Yeah. I have a question about discipline and effort. Mm -hmm. And I find sometimes in my, say, meditation practice that there's no effort involved. I want to do it. Mm -hmm. I do it. And at other times... There, it takes a lot of effort, and I struggle, and it's really hard. And at other times, I don't even put in any effort, and I don't sit. Um, and 
and then I'm pretty happy actually. You know? <laughs> it's like I'm not struggling with it, I just let go of it. Um, and you know, I sort of wonder how valuable is it to put in that effort when it's just a total struggle? And uh, how to get to that place where it doesn't take the effort to, to want to do it? That's a, a good question, but it's also a question that is really, uh, the answer has to be tailored to an individual and an individual's temperament and disposition and so forth, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, some of us are naturally more disciplined than others and actually mm -hmm. enjoy the challenge of the discipline. A lot of factors come into play there, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think that, um, first of all, it's important to understand that the overall relationship between discipline and effort is not one of opposites. And a, a good analogy for that is uh, any of the art forms, particularly performing arts, that require the body. The body has to be trained in order for you to have the freedom to perform. Mm -hmm. it's, this isn't as easily seen in things like poetry, because people can sort of just sit down and write poetry. But if you're going to play the violin, it requires a lot of discipline and training, literally training of the fingers and the muscles in the fingers and so forth in order to be able to play the violin. But ultimately, the goal is effortlessness. Right. And the, all that struggle of, you know, trying to play the notes and the discipline involved and the effort involved is not counter to the final result, which is to be able to play without even being aware of what your fingers are doing. Just the music is flowing through you in a very effortless way. So one of the, uh, I think, psychological problems that people have approaching meditation is they see it in dualistic terms, either or. And if you can see it more like an art form, then you can learn your own rhythm and your own pace. So let's say you're doing a, a simple concentration meditation and you're trying to concentrate on your breath. You're trying to learn to do that. At one extreme, there are people who take this as a challenge. They can read the manuals about how to do this. They can sit down and just really get in there and do it every day. And over time, the effort starts to... Uh, dissipate. I mean, they don't need as much effort and the mind itself, the attention itself finds its way to concentration very easily. It, it learns that it's actually very nice to be concentrated and there's peace and a tranquility and then attention itself wants to go there. And, you know, after six months or so, there's no problem in meditating anymore. For other people at the other extreme, it would be better to sit and try to watch three breaths without the mind wandering and then stop go about your business, sit down, try to watch three breaths, and then stop. Just long enough so it's interesting. Do you see what I mean? Hmm, can I really just watch three breaths without the mind wandering once? And if you start to be able to do that, you say, well, let me try four breaths. So in a certain sense, you're fooling your mind because this doesn't, it doesn't seem like it takes much effort just to sit down and just watch three breaths. Mm -hmm. And you could build a whole practice out of that. Right. And you would never feel like you had to sit down and be disciplined and all that. Just during the course of the day, every, you know, every time you had a free moment, say, okay, let me just see if I can watch three breaths here without the mind wandering. And then go about your business. And sometimes it doesn't take any. I mean, sometimes, you know, I can sit there for a half hour without effort. 
Yes. Yeah. You know, and then next month, it's like... Well, in particularly in lay life, uh, it's true that we it's hard to build a practice that will always be consistent. Mm -hmm. And that is because things uh, grab our attention, capture our attention. And so if something's going on in your life that's really capturing your attention, the attention keeps going back to that, some relationship problem, something like that, then it's difficult to concentrate. Although then sometimes you can turn it around and, and, and use that obsessive quality for your concentration practice. Mm -hmm. Let's say you've recently fallen in love with somebody. Well, use their image. Mm -hmm. Your mind is always going back to them anyway. The discipline then is instead of spinning all sorts of stories and uh, fantasies and then anticipations, you just uh, use the beloved's image. So sometimes you can actually use those uh, distractions and make them the object of meditation. Sounds like you're saying effort is always worthwhile. I mean, whether it's an effort to focus on three breaths or whatever. Well, let me put it this way. <laughs> it's a tricky thing about effort. We need effort as a remedial device. We don't need effort, ultimately. We need effort because attention already has a certain energy in it wandering around. In other words, attention's making an effort. When our attention in the normal course of the day is watching what's arising here, what's arising there, watching the thoughts, the stories, the drama, there is effort in all that. We don't feel it as effort. Mm -hmm. It feels kind of natural, but that's just, it's like having chronic pain, you know, you don't really notice you're having chronic pain until one day the pain is gone, and wow. But there's effort in all that. So it's not like we are creating effort where there's no effort. We're then just using a little effort to try to match that effort, to try to get attention to stay still, and to be truly effortless. This is why the use of effort in a meditation practice, as it develops, for most people, you need less and less effort. And in fact, if you keep applying the same amount of effort that you needed in the beginning, that itself will destroy the meditation. So it's a little bit like uh, balancing, maybe. I've never really walked on a tightrope, but you start to move this way, you need a little bit of effort to bring yourself back into balance, right? You start to fall this way, you need a little bit of effort to straighten up. But when you're at the place of perfect balance, there's no effort. And if you applied an effort at that point, you'd push yourself over one way or the other. You see what I'm talking about? So a part of the skill and the art of meditation, and this is something only each individual meditator can discover, is how much effort do I really need in this particular moment of meditation? And if the meditation is, ooh, going beautifully, you have to be able to then drop all effort. The effort will start itself to interfere with the meditation. So through the practice, you become more finely attuned to these subtleties of using just the right amount of effort. That's something else, by the way, that also then can interest the mind, and that always helps. Whenever the mind's interested in the meditation and gets interested in the subtleties of the practice, then it naturally wants to focus on what's going on. It's important to experiment in a meditation practice. Once you've uh, learned the fundamental principles of it, 
and once you've had a little, you know, a little discipline practice, but then it's really important to begin experimenting, mm -hmm. to find your own style of practice and what works for you. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the, they all work on the same principles, but how the principles are applied and so forth will be very different, can be very different. And, I mean, I appreciate all that. And part of my question is more sort of a general question. And, you know, effort, what appears to be effort is required at times, and other times it's just simple and pleasurable, and other times it's hard and difficult. And, you know, I don't see correlations necessarily with what's going on in my life. Um, but it's like you wake up one morning and everything's different. And today is different, yeah. You know? so. mm -hmm. Well, if for most people, again, it's not for everybody, but for most people, if you do sustain a meditation practice, sustain it right. over a period of months, you start to see there is a correlation with your life. Mm -hmm. You start to see that you are naturally becoming more mindful in your life. Mm -hmm. And then actually for a lot of people, if they stop meditating for a while, they notice that they're more distracted, more confused. They're not as mindful. And there's, there's an internal then motivation to go back to the practice. It would be something like, uh, you know, learning to play a musical instrument like the guitar and in the beginning, it takes a lot of effort. You don't want to do it every day, but then some days, you know, it's fun and some days it isn't. And then when you get to a point where you can start to play at least some tunes, right. and now you see, oh, you're beginning to see the payoff, so to speak, for the effort. Right. And then one morning you wake up and you don't even want to pick it up. Right. But then if you don't <laughs> pick it up for a while, if you don't keep your, yeah. as my musician friends used to say, your chops in shape, uh -huh. then you want to pick it up and you yeah. won't be able to. Uh -huh. Your fingers just won't do it. You have to go back and start practicing again. Yeah. So most musicians that I know, they knew themselves through their own experience. They had to keep up the practice if they wanted to be able to play with that kind of freedom. You know. Right. Having said all that, it's not absolutely necessary to meditate to be enlightened. Uh, there's a famous story of Wei Ning, the founder of Zen Buddhism, and, and another monk. And the other monk was sitting there meditating the way we do. And Wei Ning came over and said, what, what are you doing that for? And he said, I'm meditating in order to become a Buddha. So Wei Ning picked up a brick. And he took out his handkerchief and he starts rubbing it. So the monk looked at Wei Ning and said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm polishing this brick so it'll become a mirror. The monk says, well, the brick's never going to become a mirror, no matter how much you polish it. And Waining says, well, you're never going to become a Buddha, no matter how much you meditate. Because it's not the meditation that causes realization. There's no cause for realization. But the meditation does uh, put us into states where the opportunity for realization is greater. There are other ways to, you know, uh, have those states through devotion, for instance. In a practice of bhakti, the way it works, looking at it from an analytic point of view, is ultimately a bhakti surrenders interest in all objects but the divine. And so in a certain sense, no objects distract the bhakti anymore. The only important distinction in the world is between myself and God. So we have one distinction now. One distinction that is being focused on all the time, because the bhakti is always right there, <clears throat> the object of worship is God.
So if you see through that one distinction, the whole house of cards collapses. But the whole point about the bhakti is the devotion, the love has focused the attention. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So devotion, you see, has uh, the same basic principle as meditation. It uh, usually comes out of a different motive. It comes out of the motive of love rather than the motive of curiosity. But it still is doing the same thing. Is that helpful at all? Mm -hmm. Yes. Could you, um, could you address using dreams sort of as, um, as um, a guiding kind of coaching? Can I address using dreams as guidance? Again, that's one of these <laughs> very big subjects. Yeah. And in fact, I think I have a, a tape that you could check out. Yeah, I do have a two-set tape, uh, Practices of the Night, and one of them is specifically about dreams, and the other is about doing meditation during sleep. Oh. But uh, let me say, first of all, one of the mistakes that we make right away, especially if we come from a more psychological-orientated background, is this notion that we are going to use dreams. And from a spiritual point of view, it's not a question of using dreams, it's allowing the dreams to use us. Mm -hmm. And so when we're looking at our dreams from the point of view, what are we going to get out of the dreams? How are the dreams going to help the ego manipulate life or uh, protect itself or enhance itself and so forth? We might have dreams that will be helpful, but they will be very limited. We really won't get spiritual dreams and we won't get archetypes unless an archetype wants to break through. Do you see what I mean? So, but if you take the attitude of serving the dream rather than ask the dream to serve you and you go to sleep literally with that attitude and it's a devotional sort of attitude and you're saying, I am available for guidance and you open yourself up to that. Again, there's no cause and effect. It's not a guarantee uh, that something's going to happen. But if every night you make it a practice to go to sleep that way, chances are you will start to have spiritual dreams. And I mean that with archetypal figures, not just uh, uh, dreams relating to your personal egoic life, but dreams relating to a deeper level of your psyche. And the clearer they are, the clearer the guidance will be. Sometimes we need help interpreting the dreams, but sometimes a really strong archetypal spiritual dream, you won't need any help interpreting it. you know what I mean? It has a clarity and a power and, and a message. It'll be very clear. And then, and this is the most important thing, then the, the, you have to respond to it. Because if you ignore it, you could think of the dream will stop talking to you. Just like a friend. If you were giving advice to a friend, and uh, your friend was in distress and you start giving advice and your friend ignores your advice, you, you get bored, you stop giving the advice. Well, dreams will do that too. But if you start responding, even if you don't understand exactly where this is going and all the ramifications, do you know what I mean? The dream sees, ah, you're responding and then you get more. Even if you wake up from a dream, as I've often said, where the dream itself may be murky, but there's something 
uh, a very clear image, uh, let's say, of uh, you're standing on the corner of Willamette and 13th Street. It's very helpful for you to make the time to go down to the corner of Willamette and 13th and stand there. Not that anything's going to happen. Not that some, you know, mysterious shake is going to appear and give you a message or something. Nothing will happen, but you are signaling the dream that you take the dream seriously and that you are willing to respond and you're willing to act. So this is one of the most important things you can do to encourage spiritual dreams and guidance through spiritual dreams. So that's a good beginning. The other thing is, uh, if you're really interested, is to get a notebook or a little tape recorder and put it by your bed every night. And when you wake up in the morning, or even if you wake up in the middle of the night, if you remember your dreams, start writing them down. And start writing them down without censoring them. Whatever you remember, write it down, whether it seems stupid, whether it seems profound, whatever it seems, and you start that journal going. And again, this is responding to the dream. I mean, immediately you're changing your waking life just by the very fact you're recording it. But also, uh, after a while, you begin to build up a, a dream history. And a lot of what you can learn from dreams comes not through necessarily one great spectacular dream, but themes that keep repeating in your dreams that you won't notice from one dream. But you, after doing this for a month or so, you start to notice maybe that you have all these dreams about traveling down a path and you come to a brick wall. And maybe uh, the next dream is you're climbing a mountain and you come to a big boulder. And, and then another dream, something else. But you begin to see that the theme is you're, you're blocked. There's an obstacle. So each dream may be different. It's not like you're having the same dream every night. But these themes start to emerge. And so that can give you advice and guidance that's pointing to something going on in your life. You're doing something in your life where there's something block, uh, blocking your progress, so to speak. So those two things, one is record the dreams, or three things. Most important, go to sleep with the attitude. I'm open to getting guidance from dreams. Uh, then if you do get guidance, act on it and, and record your dreams. Those three things is a very good way to, to uh, start that practice. And see what happens from there. That's the whole point. You're submitting yourself to a teacher. <laughs> and, you know, we can't demand from our, especially our spiritual teachers, what they're going to teach us. And often the value of getting dream guidance is uh, that it's not necessarily something you want. And, and what dreams try to point to us are not necessarily things we like to look at which is often why we don't remember dreams or do ignore our dreams. But if we have the courage and the openness to do that, oh, then it can be very, very helpful. Okay? Yeah. Um, this is a little related to what you brought up, but um, I wondered if you could comment on openness to angelic guides and... Um, also, sort of weave in, I was reading Deepak Chopra last night, and he was talking about the importance of vision in life for clarity of purpose as we live our days. Mm -hmm. So, um, openness to guides 
in connection with this. Well, it's, the, it, it's really very much the same right. thing. One of the most common ways guides do appear to us is in our dreams. Sometimes they appear to us spontaneously, in, literally in visions. Uh, that's not something we can command or bring about. There's there's important thing here to to recognize that a true spiritual guide has an autonomy, and they appear when they want to appear, not when you want them to appear. Do you know what I mean? But again, if you, for instance, do meditation in deep states of meditation, you can then have visions or insights. They're not necessarily visual visions, but overwhelming insight uh, about something quite concrete for your life, some way to to go, you know. At one point in my life, uh, when I was about halfway through my spiritual path, I knew I had to leave my job, but I didn't, I, I didn't know what I was going to do next. And I got the whole picture of it in a, in a, literally in a vision that I saw in a meditation. I was meditating and the room just disappeared and I just saw this vision and that told me what I had to do next. And I followed it. Actually, it turned out to be a very profound vision, more, much more than I knew at the time, and I'm still following it today. So you can get guidance for your a vision, literally, for it will determine your whole life, everything you're going to do for the rest of your life. The only caveat or warning I would put on this is that it's very important to distinguish between what is a true spiritual vision, guidance, inner guide, and what is a product of our ego fantasy. Because it's very easy for the ego to start cooking up a sort of companion character, you know, that gives us advice and whatnot and, and sort of travels around with us. And one of the ways that you can tell the difference is just what I said before. A true spiritual guide doesn't tell you to do things you already want to do, necessarily. You don't need a spiritual guide for that. A spiritual guide tells you to do things you don't necessarily want to do or tells you things you don't necessarily want to hear. So this is one of the ways you can, you can tell. That a spiritual guide isn't always negative like that, but if, if your spiritual guide is never telling you anything you don't want to hear, and never telling you to do anything you don't want to do, I'd be very suspicious of it. <laughs> very suspicious. Is that helpful? Did... Yeah, I think so. Yeah. This question <clears throat> relates back to the opening one on the, the myth of eternal return. I know it's a it's at a little more superficial level, but I've been somewhat confused by well in the Christian exoteric tradition there's the heaven and hell convention. And in the Buddhist there and, and the Eastern uh, Hindu there's the reincarnation and they both, in my view, have stemmed from the ego desire to I personally will will never cease to be as an individual, and yet I get the sense in Buddhism, uh, the lamas and, the, and those that who are, uh, who are, I believe, more realized still seem to, uh, as I understand, still seem to hold to this idea, uh, I mean, even the, uh, isn't it the Bodhi, uh, Bodhisattva vow of, I shall keep coming back to all beings are enlightened, well, if it's an enlightened individual, <laughs> Saying that, isn't there sort of a, isn't that sort of a paradoxical situation to adopt? I mean, from their point of view, who is it coming back? Who is it going to be recycling? It is a paradoxical. And there's no ultimately getting over the paradox. 
This is stated in a very straightforward way in the Diamond Sutra, I believe it is, where the Buddha is telling his one of his most advanced disciples, Subhuti, about the Bodhisattva vow. And he, I don't, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, Subhuti, if any disciple wants to advance to nirvana, the most important thing they can do is take the bodhisattva vow, and that is to <coughs> vow never to enter nirvana alone, but to constantly return and work for the welfare of all beings until all beings have entered nirvana. But, Subhuti, he goes on to say, if the ultimate truth is known, there are no sentient beings uh, in samsara, and there are no sentient beings who can be liberated into nirvana. And the paradox is just left there in, in, in the Diamond Sutra. There's no attempt to explain it. But we can explore it a little bit more. The first thing to realize is that whenever we use words and language, we are speaking in a context, in a cultural context, because language grows up in a cultural context. There's no such thing as a, well, I shouldn't say there's no such thing as a totally individual, unique language. There are such things, but then they don't serve the function that language is supposed to serve. They don't communicate. So, for instance, um, my nephew, when he was very, very young, devised his own language, which only his mother could understand. And when he was like, you know, three or four, and they would sit and talk. It was fascinating. And she would understand exactly what he was saying, and she could talk to him in his language. It only lasted a few years. But that was a very limited language. It was a language for two people, you see. So... Uh, all teachings unfold in a language, and the language is in a context, and the context is determined by a worldview, a paradigm, and so forth. So the Buddha is talking in the worldview of Buddhism. It's a worldview, by the way, also that is evolving as all worldviews evolve. But the teaching here is that in order to attain nirvana, you have to arrive at a point of absolute selflessness. If you are motivated to attain nirvana for yourself, that motivation itself will be an obstacle. So you abandon uh, attaining nirvana for yourself and you start practicing selflessness. And the selflessness occurs at every level. You start practicing in your immediate environment, you know, as all these great Buddhist teachings of compassion are about. Uh, put the welfare of others before your, your welfare and so forth, you are actually practicing with less and less self when you do that. And so you're learning through experience what it's like to live with less and less self. But th this also applies to the motivation of why you're doing all this. Because if you're doing all this secretly so you can get enlightened, you're hanging on to a little bit of self. So if you even surrender that by taking the bodhisattva vow, then you're in a much uh, better position for lightning to strike, let's put it that way. And so there's a very practical purpose in taking that vow, even though at the ultimate level, it doesn't make any sense because there is no one to be saved. Now, on the other side of it, however, there's also an interesting uh, thing that happens, and that is if you become realized, you encounter suffering, and you don't feel that it's somebody else's suffering. So while you don't actually suffer, the suffering you encounter is, in certain sense, your suffering. What's your natural response to your own suffering? It's, it's to try to alleviate it. So compassion isn't something that a bodhisattva has to work at. It is just yeah. 
a totally natural, automatic, we might say, response to suffering. So the myth of the Bodhisattva not entering Nirvana and coming back through incarnation after incarnation and after incarnation is simply a way of expressing in that cosmology that this will go on as long as there's suffering arising in consciousness. So if we fixate too much on this business of reincarnation and all that, I think it becomes an obstacle. But if we can understand the principle behind it, the principle is wherever you encounter suffering, suffering is suffering. It's not personal. It doesn't belong to anybody. Your suffering doesn't belong to you. And other people's suffering doesn't belong to them. You see, we, it just there's suffering, so you respond. That's all. Get, get that whole business of the ownership, the self, out of the way. That's what prevents us from responding. Oh, it's not my suffering, it's their suffering. And if I engage them, I might then catch some of their suffering, like a disease or something, you know what I mean? We get all this, this concern, and it just interrupts the natural flow of what is actually going on. There's consciousness, there's manifestation of form, and there's the experience of suffering, and then there's the experience of compassion. They're inseparable. I mean, really, suffering and compassion are inseparable. If there's suffering manifesting, compassion has to manifest. If no suffering is manifesting, no compassion will manifest. And it will just be bliss. I mean, it won't take the form of compassion. It will just be happiness without having a specific form. So actually, these universes, these cosmologies, these worlds are quite complex. Mystical teachings are always trying to get us to look at the simplicity, to wean us from being involved in all that complexity and the story, and they keep trying to point us back to how simple it all is. So Jamgang uh, Kangshul says, the whole bodhisattva training reduces to two principles. Let go of concern for your own welfare and take complete hold of the welfare of others. Right? That's pretty simple. Yeah. I don't know if that's helpful. but Yeah, it is. It's just that I, I guess in my own little judgmental mind, I keep looking at how some of the exoteric practices, the subject came out because we have a friend who's become very interested in Buddhism, lives in the San Diego area. She's flying to Canada to get an empowerment. Mm -hmm. We were just talking about, well, she's going to spend a day with us on the way back. and <laughs> What kind of discussion we're going to have about empowerment. She's so caught up in it that I think we see missing the, the message underneath. I mean, they seem to distract, although I, I can see where they may go hand in hand at some level. But uh, it confuses me, and I think you know, I've been guilty of it in the past. Well, in any situation like that, the first thing to understand is why it's important to her to have an empowerment. Well, we decided it's a, it's a, she'll be the guru. Or if we can be really compassionate, we'll let her talk about it. Of course. Uh, well, you'll learn something. I'd be interested to talk to her about it. Uh, this, again, you've already noticed the problem. The problem is not her going to have an empowerment. The problem is your judgmental mind. Yep. If she goes have an, has an empowerment and comes back and is happier, calmer, has received a new practice to do, is motivated to continue the path, what's your problem? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, they're turning on me. <laughs> <laughs>
No, I, I, I recognize that. You know, I'm not picking on you because sure. our minds do do this. <laughs> you know why? Our minds are very protective of our worldview, which we, of course, never recognize as a worldview. Ours, we know reality, and these other people have these weird worldviews. Oh, you understand me. But <laughs> whenever your mind starts judging that, it's something to check out. What am I hanging on to? What sort of fundamentalist perception do I have about the world that's locked in? This is the way it is. And so uh, you, can, you cannot judge another person's worldview as being superstitious or mythological or something, except in relation to what you believe to be reality. There must be some belief in reality here. Otherwise, there's no basis to judge something is not real. So that's a good opportunity to go and look at what are the assumptions I hold that may be just as fictitious, like the gongs have an inherent objective existence. You, you mean they don't? <laughs> <laughs> well, gee, I'm glad I brought <laughs> Cut through that. <laughs> so surprised one day if that works. <laughs> so will I. That's what I said. You will. Oh, eat. yes. <laughs> but delighted. <laughs> I got uh, nothing to lose and everything to gain. Well, that's been a good discussion. Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? And uh, you're welcome to check out the library and have some tea. Until we see you again, peace to you all. <laughs>